It's time to rethink everything, to redo the rulebook, to explore smarter ways to work and rediscover what's possible. It's time for a fresh take on how technology and creativity are changing the way work gets done. I'm Brian Rowley, and this is The Big Rethink. Today's episode is about the exciting world of clean air travel and the technology that is enabling its continued innovation, as well as the potential it holds to improve other industries such as disaster relief or cargo delivery. Our guests today are Brian Morrison, co-founder of Alakai Technologies, and Peter Fault, director of BMW Group Design Works. Welcome to the show, guys. I'm happy to have you here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks. So, Brian, let, let's start with you. Um, tell us a little bit about how you came to co-found um, Alakai Technologies and, and what leads you sort of to this industry itself. The roots of this go back to some NASA activities back in the mid-1990s that were charged with thinking about what do we need to do that would enable different modes of air travel 20 years in the future. Of course, now we're 20 years in the future. Um, but that program was, was looking at things like point-to-any-point transportation and personal air travel and envisioning a future where people were not restricted to just traveling in automobiles on fixed routes on the surface of the planet, but could actually easily, cheaply, uh, take off and fly to their destination without being tied to a particular altitude or to a particular fixed route, uh, truly to uh, enable users to be able to maximize greatly the density of uh, travel from point A to point B. So for example, uh, Peter, uh, who's one of our, our directors in the company, um, lives in the greater Los Angeles area. And I think Peter would probably be the first to tell you that this is something he really looks forward to in being able to get out of traffic jams on the freeway and have the ability to literally rise above it all and go where he needs to go without spending hours in a car. Um, that's exactly so that's what really I think the, about. That's really the roots. <laughs> that, that, was, that, that was the earliest roots of, gee, this would be a great thing to be able to do. Then as technology has advanced over the years, in the early, you know, 2012, 2013, started exploring uh, these small drones that people were starting to use, kids were starting to use, um, mm -hmm. and got involved in some of the software development for that and started conceiving, well, what if we could take this idea but scale it up to the point and add the necessary reliability and maintainability and, and performance issues so that you could safely, carefully carry passengers from point A to point B and do it in a way such that the FAA would eventually uh, embrace it and be able to certify it. Um, so that was really the, the place where I started from. How do we build a vehicle that would be vertical takeoff and landing, point-to-any-point transportation, um, safe, reliable, low-cost, clean energy uh, to allow this future of point-to-any-point transportation that we had envisioned 20, 25 years ago? 
So, Brian, if I've done my homework correct, you mentioned a NASA program, and I think if I understand it correctly, your dad was actually a senior program manager for the Apollo program. Do I do I have that correct? You do. Way back when, uh, late fifties, early sixties, um, the Apollo program was one of the early space programs that was actually using fuel cells uh, as a source of power on board the vehicle. Um, they didn't, were not able to get enough uh, power from solar cells for those missions uh, to run the computers that were archaic by today's standards, but state-of-the-art in 1960, took a fairly significant amount of power and fuel cells were uh, a way for them to generate the amount of voltage and current that they needed on board. And it had the nice advantage that the byproduct is clean water that they could use for drinking water. Really, that's kind of that's an interesting, <laughs> interesting side for sure. So, so Peter, we, you're in LA. So, uh, as Brian points out, there's obviously no shortage of traffic jams there. Talk to me a little bit about how you've sort of seen this whole air travel, especially clean air travel, sort of evolve over the years. Sure. Well, I think like many people, when I first heard about it. Uh, urban air mobility or advanced air mobility. Uh, it, I was, I was dubious, um, or, or at best I thought it was far out in the future. So fantastic, right. Or fantasy. And, and then I met, uh, Brian and, uh, the Alakai uh, team and, um, became the lead of that program. And it was that reintroduction, uh, or that, to, to, to air mobility that started showing the reality of what was actually coming. So that changed my opinion from a long-term view to actually this is near-term. So it has changed dramatically in that stance as far as implementation timeline. And then uh, just watching as, this, as the public has become aware of it, just to see the mindset change, I think everybody kind of goes to that same thing. It's like, yeah, maybe when I'm, uh, I hope I see it when I'm alive. And then you tell them that it's actually just a couple years away. And then the immediate response is, it's, it's the Jetsons. So, uh, and they get excited about the, the possibility of using the service. So I've seen it kind of move through uh, that that stage of, of receptivity to now where it's really uh, cities and uh, and. And, and countries saying, how are we going to embrace UAM and how are we going to integrate it into our transportation system? So it's much more of a, a formal discussion now uh, than when we even started the project. You know, um, Peter, it's interesting because every time we talk about technology in this format, you know, we get to a conversation and it always falls back to the Jetsons. You know, I mean, but the reality of this really is, I mean, it is basically what we were seeing. I don't want to get too far off course here, but, you know, it, it really essentially was um, what we actually see from the Jetsons. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, it's, it's you know, we, we'll talk a little bit about this, but I think the term that the industry uses is even tolls, which keep me honest here, um, electric vertical uh, takeoff and landing aircraft. Is that is that correct? That's the correct terminology for EV toll? Yes, that's correct. Yep. Okay. So, so I know that um, each of you, you know, you sort of forged this partnership to create the Sky product. 
Um, Brian, let me start with you on this one. What was sort of that inspiration behind that? And maybe you could just very quickly um, sort of tell our audience who's listening a little bit about what the, the Sky product actually is. Sure. So we started with a, a concept for a six rotor EV tall. Um, initially tried to do it with lithium ion batteries and very quickly realized that we were never going to have the mission duration, the time of flight, and the payload with batteries that we could get with fuel cells. Hence, you know, back to my early exposure to fuel cells when I was growing up. So started architecting a platform that would have to have a certain amount of size in order to carry the fuel cells that are required uh, and have six rotors to lift it into the air. And that was the point where we brought in uh, BMW's Design Works group out in Th Thousand Oaks to help us with the industrial design side of it, the look and feel of what the vehicle has become. It was very important to our other founder, the funder, um, that we produce a vehicle that when you got into it very much felt like walking into the lobby of a high-end hotel was the way he described it. So it had to be comfortable and you know very nicely outfitted, something that would make customers, passengers feel not only safe, but comfortable and relaxed, and that would be very quiet compared to traditional helicopters that people are used to flying in. So all of those things were sort of design factors. And the most fascinating thing was seeing how DesignWorks approached this. But it was fascinating to see a team of artists basically take this concept and go off in a corner and come back with 30 or 40 different pencil and paper sketches of how they saw that concept. And then gradually over time, we took the best features from you know, version A and B and C and you know however many there were, coalesced them into you know, a combined product and then did another round and another round and eventually wound up at the vehicle that we know as Sky, which is exactly what we were looking for. Supremely comfortable inside. It has a, a very large moonroof overhead, which for those of you who have flown in a helicopter, having a moonroof or a skylight is unheard of uh, in this class of vehicle, but because we have six rotors, and none of them are right directly over the vehicle. It gives the passengers a unique experience to be able to look up, see the sky, see mountains nearby, have great visibility out the side windows. Uh, it's just um, design works experience from, from our standpoint was just amazing. Yeah, you mentioned, uh, so you mentioned sort of the moonroof, you mentioned uh, visibility, you mentioned comfort, um, quietness. Peter, you know, from the design perspective of it, um, I'm curious, you know, are these all trends that you're seeing sort of in industrial design as of late? Um, and, and I guess the second part of the question would be, you know, do you expect that to sort of influence sort of air, the air travel industry as a whole? Or do you think it's sort of unique to this particular type of vehicle? Oh, well, um, so we did, as Brian mentioned, we did have um, quite a list of criteria 
I can imagine. To fulfill. And, one of, <laughs> and, and one of those was, as he mentioned, this kind of wow factor that was expected uh, by um, the key uh, investor. And um, so that was just one of the criteria. And the wow is kind of a wild card. It's not always one, one-to-one as to what makes someone say wow, but we've all experienced uh, spatial uh, things that we have that reaction to. It's just kind of this natural wow. But the, but the other criteria was, was just as important, obviously, light weighting and cost and all those types of things as well. Simplicity uh, ruled. Um, but the, the thing that I think um, is, is uh, evident in Sky is that it was designed with the human at the center, so all of it was designed as the passenger experience. Everything from what the vehicle's stance looks like from the distance to as you approach the vehicle to where you're actually uh, going into the vehicle to the sitting to the in-flight uh, experience, visibility, as was mentioned, all kinds of uh, those levels of comfort. So that was... Um, really at the core of all of the conceptualization, that and how we're going to uh, design a component layout that would best afford those, those human, uh, that human experience. So that's, that just goes without saying. And I think what we're seeing is that natural uh, culmination of that. I think in general, to your question about aviation, that's where everyone is trying to go. They're trying to understand this more and more of the psychological aspects of privacy and cocooning and, you know, what are just those uh, emotional factors that, um, that have just as much of an, uh, an impression on an experience than, than just, uh, you know, colors or, or standard forms. Well, as you mentioned, you had sort of a list of requirements um, when you actually uh, embarked on this endeavor. Um, I guess one of the questions that I would have is, you know, talk to us a little bit about sort of the challenges or setbacks that you might have had during sort of the ideation or execution process in the design of this. And Peter, yeah, I'll, I'll start. And I'm you. sure yeah. Brian has a list, too. Uh, but, um, <laughs> you know, it, it was the, the, the great thing. Uh, firstly, what makes a, a, a wonderful uh program is the content which we're talking about here in this in the space but also the team and so Alakai had a tremendous team some of the most knowledgeable intelligent people I've worked with and so that makes it um, dynamic because we could put something forth forth and it would be uh, reviewed um, you know trying to accept that fresh perspective but then it would be uh, uh, tempered by the reality. So that could be whatever it be, you know, aerodynamics or uh, a component reality or something. They, they would understand what we were trying to achieve. Then some limitations perhaps or some considerations would come in and then we could evolve that quickly into uh, a refined uh, direction. So we were, we were hitting those kinds of, of roadblocks, but we had to in order to kind of marry this idealism with the practicality of the actual craft. So the, uh, maybe as a, an example of what Peter was, was describing, on an eVTOL, it's very important that you have obviously some kind of landing gear or skids that are going to allow you to touch down. And you might think, oh, okay, well, I'll just 
mirror what I've seen on helicopters in the past, where they just take basically, you know, two-inch diameter pipe and bend it and make landing gears. Well, that's all well and good, but what about the use cases where, you know, you're still traveling forward when you touch down, you want the skid to actually skid, not just uh, land in a, a fixed location. So you have to worry about, you know, what is the bottom surface of that skid made of? It can't be necessarily carbon fiber. It might have to resort to stainless steel. Another case, this is something we spent a fair amount of time talking about, is the compression that has to occur when the vehicle lands. Vehicle comes down, if it hits hard, some amount of that vertical acceleration or deceleration has to be absorbed by compression in the landing skids so that you don't transmit that energy into the spine of the passenger. So as it turns out, you can take up some of that with the landing gear design. You can take up some of it with a compressible seat design where the seat itself slides down as you have a particularly hard landing. And, and those are some of the things where the, the aerospace background of some of the, the people on our team were instrumental in trying to sort those factors out. Um, and I think it probably allowed us to arrive at a, a design much more rapidly than a group that's, say, coming into this from uh, from more of a Silicon Valley perspective. So is that absorption that you're talking about? I mean, I would think that that's similar to, you know, when we fly commercial aircraft, right? When you actually touch down, you know, you have either really great landings or you have potentially some some rougher landings, right? So is is there any leverage that you are able to accomplish between sort of what already exists as a result of sort of commercial air travel into what you're doing here? Or was it like completely from, from design start? Um, you, you can leverage some of commercial aircraft. You can leverage some from, you know, existing rotorcraft, the seat design as an example. Um, but the requirements are really what drives this. The FAA says... You have to be able to withstand, a, I forget the exact number, but 30G uh, deceleration. And you can't put 30Gs into the, the passenger's spine because you're going to cripple them. So the vertical load requirements for an eVTOL, even for a helicopter, are much, much larger than they are for a regular transport aircraft, where granted the landing gear is absorbing some of the energy, uh, but it's much more critical in a a rotorcraft or in an EV tall design. Yeah, it, it's fascinating. I mean, the industry itself is fascinating. I think when you and I and Peter first got together, I told you that there were sort of these three things that I, I love the uh, airline industry as a whole. I love the EV space as a whole. So like when you can put those two things together and create sort of the future of what technology is, I mean, it's just, it's such a fascinating thing. I, I find the project uh, amazingly um, just it, it, what you're able to do. And I, I can't wait to see this, to see what it looks like, because I think it's, well, I've seen what it looks like in some of the articles. So if it's, if, if the prototypes are, are what it actually is going to be, it's going to be quite amazing. And I think it's going to be a really interesting, uh, product to follow, but let me ask you this, you know, uh, you know, how do you think sky itself and its zero carbon and pollution will sort of influence the industry or even other industries like to consider the sky as sort of a more desirable course and sort of to focus on sustainability in travel uh, versus sort of what we're seeing uh, in, in some of the travel today? 
I'm curious to get your thoughts on that, Brian. So to me, that's really the, the crux of the design is having a vehicle that can go and transport people completely, you know, not just carbon neutral, but with zero pollution footprint at all. Um, and that can be all the way from the inception of the hydrogen all the way through putting it in the vehicle, operating the vehicle, uh, getting you to your destination. Um, and, you know, maybe I'm, you know, a little too too biased in my thinking on this, but there's no reason that that can't become the prevalent means of propulsion, whether it be for fixed-wing aircraft, even large aircraft. There's a lot of research going on with Airbus and Boeing these days aimed at how do we get to a hydrogen-powered vehicle? Now, that might be 15 or 20 years from now before they get to that point. But I'm hoping that we can help sort of pave the way for others to follow and accomplish the same thing to drive down the amount of pollution that uh, it takes to get people moved around in our environment. Yeah, it's interesting. When I was reading, um, I think uh, it was an interview that you did um, with In the News, and you had talked about sort of some of the the challenges with the FAA. And, and I think, interestingly enough, um, it appears as though you have people's attentions. I think you know, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think I think in in one of the the quotes that you had had, you had mentioned that you know you'd go into rooms for other projects, and there'd be you know a few people that would be there, but you've had no shortage of people who have shown up to meetings that you've had in regards to this topic. So. I'm curious. I mean, is it is it the the carbon footprint component of it? Is it the change in the way in which we see air travel? What is it that you think has the most interest? What's driving that? Without sounding like I'm, you know, beating our own drum here, um, I think the combination of, I mean, other people are doing electric vehicles, other people are doing EV tolls, but we're the only one that's doing an electric hydrogen fuel cell powered vehicle that brings all of those technologies, all of those concepts together and coalesces it into a single design that my expectation is we're going to be the first to certify in this space. And I think the FAA folks, we've had tremendous support from the FAA. They love the program. They love the project. Uh, they're you know, super supportive in, in reviewing documents and get, getting back to us. Uh, they too want to see this succeed, not to the point where they're going to bend the rules, but they absolutely are invested in a clean fuel vehicle for the future of, of transportation. I mean, this is their, their life. This is their world, air transportation. And unless we do something to get carbon out of it, to get pollution out of it, it's going to get uh, severely impacted by things that we know we have to do uh, to reduce pollution in the environment. So, I mean, there's obviously, uh, from a technology perspective, it's pretty amazing um, from what it can do to the environment. It, it's equally as amazing uh, in terms of being able to protect uh, the world that we live in and sort of leave it in a better place than how we found it. Peter, I'll direct this towards you. I mean, can you share with us, like, what are some of the initial use cases that uh, we might see uh, this type of a vehicle, Sky specifically, um, being used for? Sure. Well, um, everybody, again, back to that kind of fantastic understanding, thinks about the uh, air taxi or what we call the Sky Cab. 
And so that's like a, an Uber in the sky, if you will. And, and that is the, the dream of, of flying over congestion and, and whatnot. And, and that will be a use case. There's, there's no doubt about it. That is one of the core use cases is uh, commuting or, uh, or some type of uh, you know, intermodal transportation. And the intermodal piece is important because tying this new form of transportation to existing uh, shared or public transportation is an important aspect, uh, at least here in, in Los Angeles. But um, the other uh, use case, of course, is, is cargo or goods transport. There's a whole other um, kind of cost of goods uh, comparison and where those, um, how that business model shakes out and what makes sense. Um, and then there is, uh, yes, the emergency response, uh, first responders, whether that be ambulance, whether that be fire delivering um, supplies uh, after a natural disaster or accident. Um, and then there's just pure recreation, um, you know, tourism even in that. You can imagine what it would be like to go to Alakai in Hawaii and actually fly a very pristine environment in a uh, non-polluting manner. So I can see that this, uh, this particular craft or uh, a, a no-pollution, zero-emission uh, vehicle will really help that ecotourism uh, be sustainable. Um, so yeah, private and you know that can be also private ownership. So someone can use this <clears throat> as they would a private aircraft unto themselves. So is this like you know in a couple of years you and Brian are going to be literally walking into your backyard? get into sky and, and off you go to work. I mean, is that like, I mean, I'm joking a little bit here, but at the same time, I mean, that is a reality, right? I mean, that, that is sort of the whole, um, some of the benefit is to relieve some of the congestion on the roads and, and move that to, uh, to, to air travel. Is that, is that, is that a fair statement? That, that is absolutely a fair statement. It's, um, getting people to, Except a new paradigm, as you know, is going to take some time. But the more people see examples of somebody using it, whether they're seeing it and using it in an air taxi form, or they see somebody that owns one privately taking it off and flying uh, into the city. Um, my own wife works in at MIT, and from where we live, it can take 45 minutes on a good day to travel by road, or it can take two and a half to three hours, depending on whether somebody has a flat tire and everybody has to pull over and look at it. Um, so the use case where, particularly as we get to an autonomous version of the vehicle, where she can get in the vehicle in our front yard, punch a button that says, I want to go to you know, such and such a building at MIT, and the vehicle takes over and takes it from there. She can sit and read journals on the flight, and, you know, 12 to 13 minutes later, it deposits her at MIT, either on the top of a rooftop or in a roof, roof of a parking garage, whatever designated landing space has been agreed. Yeah, well, that's an interesting point, too. So, I mean, it is, I mean, I'm assuming as part of this, we look at it from the vehicle perspective and sort of requirements and safety and all of that. Of um, There's also the component of where you can take off and land. Um, I'm, I'm assuming this isn't just going to be a free-for-all where 
you have just, you know, these EV tolls just sort of dropping out of the sky, right, anywhere they want. I'm, I'm assuming there's going to be some, 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 some level of, you know, um, requirements that are going to be there. So, so how, how is that progressing uh, in terms of sort of the what's required in order to be able to establish that? And are there other are there certain areas that are more advanced um, in starting to, to have those conversations than other parts of the country? Yeah, I'd be happy to, uh, to speak to a little of that. Um, it, it really does get down to a, uh, uh, a zoning and a land use discussion very quickly. And so the planning department uh, being involved and, and understanding um, what dictates uh, or what, a, what allows a vertiport uh, and, and to its location. And some of that, like I said, can be preferential, like strategically making sure that it, uh, that it uh, synchronizes with the public transportation and, and, and continues a shared uh, philosophy here in, uh, in Los Angeles. But uh, it also has to look out because as you start to build these vertiports, you maybe will prevent uh, from a zoning a building going in next to it that a developer may have different plans for. So it's going to be um, quite interesting to see how the regulations and the policies uh, come out. But again, speaking uh, from here in Los Angeles, the environmental piece is, is core um, not just from the emissions, but also the sound uh, emissions and what some of that impact could be on the community. So uh, studies have been done in order to uh, to preview that and to give policymakers insight to that. But um, I guess the point of it is that the more quiet and the less emissive a vehicle is, the further that craft can go into the fabric of the city. So we may have smaller, uh, very uh, limited access vertiports that only allow certain type of craft to move into that versus some of the louder uh, and and more polluting or whatever you want to call them will not have access to it. So it's going to be this combination of vehicle and uh, ground space. It's interesting because the noise pollution one is kind of an interesting thing. I always found when uh, the EV world started to sort of explode, it was interesting to see um, the response that people had where they missed the actual noise of the engine. So now you have these new EV manufacturers who are now piping noise right into the vehicle to replicate the sound that you know you had from a combustion engine at one point in time. So it's kind of interesting. You've got the benefit of it, but then you don't realize just how impactful taking that away is to what one might identify as the overall experience. Peter, one thing that I want to go back to and just, just talk to is because I, I find the use case around first responders to be one that is just um, incredibly important um, and, and, and one that I hope gets here sooner rather than later. When you look at some of the statistics around the amount of time um, and the impact that has potentially on someone's life of traffic or 
quite honestly, people who are just driving past a scene and not paying attention and, you know, the impacts that it has to our first responder communities. Um, I love that use case. Um, I hope that that's one that uh, sort of comes to life sooner rather than later, because I think it will not only protect our first responders, but it will help those that are in need um, get the attention that they need a lot faster than we might we might see or have seen. It's going to be um, a natural because the first responders, particularly in a case of an ambulance, is something that we all benefit from. So, so I, if I see an ambulance, you know, flight for life, for example, going to the uh, hospital, I realize that that could be me, perhaps, or someone that I know or love, and that they need that same thing. So, so I, it, 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 um, it fosters the acceptance. Um, of let's say the noise of that helicopter is not so such a nuisance because I have tempered it with the uh, the value. And so I see that being probably one of the first use cases um, all over the world because there's that shared benefit. So I won't put you on the hot seat, Brian, but I'll, I will a little bit. So realistically, when when can when do you think we'll sort of start to see? Um, more noise about this and actually start to see um, these actual vehicles, you know, operating and, and, and actually moving around airspace? I think we'll start to see um, first responder type uses, particularly National Guard uses, which are exempt from FAA certification in late next year uh, in certain communities and then certified versions in 2023. Um, obviously, none of us want to push the FAA faster than they want to go. Um, we have a lot of testing to go through. Uh, whether it you know it winds up being in 2023 or it pushes over early into 2024, we're, we're that close to having certified vehicles in large-scale production that can be used in numerous types of applications. By mentioning the, the use case with National Guard, however, that is an example where early versions of the vehicle that are identical to what's going through FAA certification testing can be deployed, whether manned or unmanned, for things like disaster relief, where you need to get somebody out of a remote area and get them to a hospital, or you need to get things as simple as bottled water and food supplies into remote areas that are totally cut off because of flooding. A hurricane hitting a coastal area, for an example. Um, in North Carolina, as an example, two or three years ago, I-95 was shut down for six or seven days. And that's the major north-south route that you know brings supplies into the area. So that was really an area at the time when they started looking seriously at, we need some better way to be able to provide disaster relief uh, to our own citizens. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's just amazing the potential of this. And, and I will say congratulations to, to both of you 
um, and the entire team at Alakai, um, I, I think this guy product is going to be something that uh, I know I will personally follow and I look forward to uh, my first ride um, in it once it actually does launch, me and many others. But um, really want to thank you guys for your time. I, I mean, I could go on and on and, and would love to have you back uh, as you sort of progress in the process here and uh, and keep us updated uh, in regards to the progress that you're making. But Really appreciate you being a part of this today. So thank you, guys. Pleasure. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Brian. Really appreciate it. So before we sign off, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can help us grow by visiting our feeds on iTunes to rate, review, and subscribe. Or if you're listening on Spotify, be sure to hit follow. That's it for us. I'm Brian Raleigh, and that was another episode of The Big Rethink.